0: You know, every day, you have to make a lot of decisions. Have you noticed that? I just go to the grocery store. I just want toothpaste and bread. And I have to make so many decisions. I mean, there are so many brands of toothpaste. It's insane. And of course, if you're like me, you're stressing out because you want to get the best toothpaste for the lowest price. Right? Like, I don't want to spend any more than I have to, and I want this toothpaste to be amazing. Did you know the average human being, I don't know how they got this statistic, the average human being adult makes 3,500 remotely conscious decisions every day. No wonder we're so tired, right? It's a lot of decisions that we make every day. I feel like life, um, if you step back from it, it just looks like a picture, um, and if you get really close to it, you know how you get close to a TV screen and you see the pixels? If if there were pixels in life, they would be decisions. Your life, largely, the outcome of it is largely determined by hundreds and thousands and millions, probably billions of decisions that you make. I'm not trying to stress you out, I'm just saying. We make a lot of them. We make a lot of decisions. And as Christians, we should think about how we make decisions differently than the world. And I don't mean uh, that we should make different decisions than the world, because actually we make a lot of the same ones, don't we? <laughs> we make a lot of the same decisions. You and a non-Christian both get up in the morning, you both put on, hopefully, pants, and uh, you go to work and you do the things, right? But, but as Christians, we, we should think about how we make decisions differently. We should have a different grid for the way that we make decisions. What you make your decisions based on says a lot about your worldview. In fact, if you wanna know somebody really well, uh, you just figure out what they think, uh, or why they think they should do something or not do something. It's one of the most helpful ways to figure out and and analyze someone's worldview. For instance, if someone claims to be a Christian, but they make all their decisions purely based off of scientific research, um, statistics, and what others say, then they're actually not really a Christian as much as they're a deist. A deist is just someone that believes God exists, but he's not involved. Okay? If someone says that they're a Christian, but they make all their decisions based off of what feels good, feels right, or what others think they should do, they're really not a Christian as much as they are a secular humanist. They're, 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 they're tuned in to what humanity thinks and what they think. Okay? So, what your decision, the way you, you, the way you process decisions, says a lot about what you believe um, the world, uh, or why you believe the world exists, and how you believe you're supposed to function within it. And our culture has done this, really thing, this thing where it's separated out spirituality from practicality so much so that it's resulted in a false sense of rationality. Okay, We've separated spirituality from what they would call practicality and it's resulted in a false sense of rationality. And what I mean by that is that we think of religious things or spiritual things in our culture, which our culture really likes actually. They're not anti-spiritual, not anti-religious. But they think of those things as things that are helpful when you're trying to find some kind of meaning and purpose inside your house. They don't see those things as helpful when you're actually trying to live within the daily practical things of life. And, And this is leaked downstream like everything does into the church and now the church and many Christians feel that way about their Christianity. Christianity is helpful on Sunday when I'm around Christians Christianity is helpful in the morning when I'm doing my devotional Christianity is helpful when I'm looking for some sense of meaning and purpose But it's not helpful when I'm trying to decide how to buy a car What job to take how to deal with this how to deal with that all the thousands millions of decisions that we make every day The reason is because we've started to think that the physical universe is more real than the spiritual universe Okay And this is simply not true and as Christians, we have to admit, if we believe the Bible, that what's in the spiritual realm, the, the dimension that is outside of our dimension, <laughs> is actually more real than what we live in. Think about it like this. If you're a two-dimensional person and you live inside of a, uh, a two-dimensional universe, or I'm sorry, if you're a two-dimensional person and you live inside of a three-dimensional universe, you see everything how? You see it in two dimensions. But you live in a three-dimensional universe, so you see a cube and you think it's a square and everyone around you would say no 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 no, that's a cube and you say what's that what's a cube that's a square look at it it's a square and this is what people do this is what people do they live in the physical universe and they look at things through the physical lens and they're missing a dimension and when you get saved what what it says is that you are now born again into this understanding of this new dimension it's the dimension that you can't see it's the spiritual reality of things that God is doing in the world. And it's, when I say it's more real, I don't mean it's more real as though that this around us isn't real. I mean it's more real because um, it's actually the full picture. See, God sees the full picture. We only see part of it. God sees all three dimensions. We only see two, if, if, you, if you get the analogy, okay? And so when we make decisions as Christians, we have to think in God's dimension. We have to think um, and, and allow him to shape our decisions that we make because he sees the whole picture. So how do we as Christians allow the realities of our faith in God and his word to shape not only our spiritual life but all of our practical life? This is what sanctification really is. It's God consuming every part of your life. It's God becoming the ultimate reality that informs everything that you do in your life. Now, in our text this morning, the reason this is applicable is because what we're coming up here in chapter six is the church, which has been growing because of a spiritual reality, because God has been bringing life into people's um, souls upwards, probably close to 20,000 at this point in the church, and because they've been growing so explosively, practical things have come up. Have you ever noticed that in life? Spiritual things lead to practical things. Okay? Um, it's all great and fun to get married, and then when you get married, you actually have a marriage. <laughs> and, and marriage means practical things. You know, I mean, you gotta go to the bank and figure out how your finances are gonna work. You gotta figure out, okay, do we put the seat up or do we put the seat down? I mean, you know, what kind of, you gotta, there's practical decisions. Okay? So the church, is that not a thing for you guys? Um, I'm just trying to teach my four-year-old to put it up before he pees, because every time I go in there, there's three dots, man, driving me crazy. Okay, anyways, I digress. The, the point here is that the church has grown, and because they've grown, now there's practical issues that need to be addressed. There's decisions that need to be made. Um, and an issue comes up that we'll look at. An issue comes up um, between these two sort of sects of, of Jews, the Hebraic and, and Hellenistic, and, and the disciples, or the apostles have to decide, they have going to make a decision about how to deal with it. And so that's what we're going to look at. And what I really want to do this morning with you is I just want to talk about how we as Christians make practical decisions. It's going to be a very practical sermon because you guys are going to walk out of here, you're going to make a decision. The second the music comes on, you're gonna make a decision. Do I wanna go talk to people or do I wanna to go to lunch? Okay? Do I wanna, you know, I mean, do I wanna take a nap this afternoon? Or, do, you know, those kinds of decisions are gonna come up today. And I wanna help you think about how to decide them. Okay, so let's jump right into our text. note. let me just talk about the context of this passage really quickly. Um, if you're gonna do good exegesis, which is the study of the scriptures, you need to start as big and zoomed down as you possibly can. So we always ask the question of this text, because we're going through the book of Acts, where does it live in the whole book of the Bible, okay? What's its purpose and the entirety of the scripture? And, and the answer to that is that God is building his kingdom. He's been building his kingdom Um, really since the beginning of time, since Genesis 3, um, when it first fell apart and broke into ruins. But now we're seeing God give us a foreshadow of the future kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and we're getting a taste of it through the church, which we're still part of. And because of that, the enemy, who's very real and very much hates what God does, the enemy is coming against that kingdom as it inbreaks into this world. The kingdom is breaking into the world, and the enemy hates it. He's against it. So the enemy has been attacking the church all throughout the first six chapters. First, he did it through full-on persecution, full frontal assault, and what happened? The Holy Spirit came through. The Holy Spirit nurtures the organism that it created. So the full frontal assault didn't work. And then uh, two weeks ago, we saw the enemy attack through Ananias and Sophia from within the church through hypocrisy, through false religion. And that didn't work either. And so now we're gonna see a third attack in this. And that is through the dissension and the grumbling within the church. One of the number one things that takes down churches besides moral failures of pastors is churches fighting with each other. They're just fighting and splitting. Most church plants aren't church plants, they're church splits. Praise God, this is not a church split. (laughs) We love Heritage. Heritage sent us out here. We're still friends with them. A lot of our ladies are at the retreat with them right now. This is not a church split. This is a church plant. Okay, which is good news. So there's some dissension going on within the ranks of what God is doing. Um, and then, quickly, the literary context of this passage, how it fits within the book of Acts, is, is that Luke is trying to introduce us to two characters that are going to come up a lot in the next few weeks. So it's important that you know them, named Stephen and Philip. Okay, Stephen and Philip. These two guys are going to be key players in the, the, the narrative that's coming in the future weeks. Um, so, He needs to introduce the reader to these two particular characters. So, knowing that, let's just jump right in. Verse 1, chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what's the problem here? The problem is, first of all, there's two groups within the Christian church. And this is actually just something that was going on culturally within Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was made up of two different types of Jews. There were the Hebraic Jews that were considered Hebrews. They, They grew up and were born in Palestine. They spoke the language Aramaic. Okay? Aramaic was the common language in that particular time. They knew the Jewish customs. Uh, they were from the land. And then there was a whole second group of Jews that lived in Jerusalem and Palestine, and they were from what was called the Diaspora, which is the dispersion, Jews that were scattered all throughout the ancient world. Why were they scattered? Well, first of all, because Jerusalem was uh, exiled by Babylon and spread everywhere. And most of them didn't come back. Most of them stayed and grew up and lived in their communities in Babylon and all kinds of different places. And the Greek world was such an influence over all of the ancient world. Greek culture really just had such an effect that even Rome was largely influenced by Greece. Okay, their philosophy, their culture, it was very powerful, uh, very magnetic. So you had a whole group of Jews that came back to Jerusalem, having grown up outside of Jerusalem with Greek culture and Greek language. And so there was like a melting pot within Jerusalem. It's very similar to today. If you, go to, to, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you go to Israel, there's something called the Zionists. The Zionists were these Jews that came into the country um, really after the country you know, started. They're not from Palestine. They didn't grow up there, but they lived in Europe or other places, and they migrated back and became Israel, what we know of Israel today. So when you go to Israel, there's a melting pot of Palestine, Palestinian um, Jews, of, um, you know, European Jews, and then there's the the Arabs, and there's just this real tension there because there's just multiple cultures mixed together. So what you have here is this melting pot, this early church of of different cultures. It'd be similar like if we said, hey, we're going to start a church, and it's going to be half um, immigrant Latinos that don't speak English, and half people that were from Grants Pass and grew up here. Imagine that, 20,000 of them, Okay. Um, so, and, and all the apostles, by the way, are from Jerusalem. So they don't really relate or connect with the Hellenistic Jews. So the complaint comes up from the Hellenistic widows um, that they're not being treated fairly. Okay, now keep in mind, there is no social programming governmentally at this time. So widows were being supported, rightly so, supported by the church. And the, and the, the Hellenistic Hebrews, uh, or the Hellenistic widows, are feeling mistreated. So they complain. Okay, they complain now. Whether or not they should have complained or not, I don't know. We don't need to get into it. But the reality is, is church equals complaints. I've just worked at church a long time, and when you work at church, complaints come. Right, right. This is the reality. Now, some of them are good complaints. Some of them need to come, and some of them aren't. You know. But part of any kind of organization, um, because we live in a fallen world, is complaints come. And when complaints come, you have to figure out are they valid. Okay, and and these guys clearly saw that they were. So look at verse three and four. So the solution they come up with, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will appoint to this duty, but, will, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles, it's not that they thought they were above serving tables. Don't read that. Many pastors have used this as an excuse to not do anything physical. Okay. Uh, it's not that the apostles thought they were above serving these widows. It's that the apostles knew that their primary place was to be preaching and in prayer. And they realized as they were probably trying to do both, they were doing both not very well. Okay? So rather than doing two things not very well, um, they were good delegators. It's a very practical decision. Let's take some men who are godly, filled with the spirit and wise. Those are the three qualifications. Okay? They've been born again. they're born again, they're wise, they're they're able-bodied, and let's empower them to focus on this area of ministry for us so that we can focus on what we need to focus on. This is the basic idea. Now, we don't have time to get into this. A lot of people connect this passage to Paul's deacon list. You ever go to a church and they have deacons? And they're usually the guys that set up the chairs. Okay, I don't know where we get that. I don't see it in the Bible. Um, If this is the first deacon's, they're not setting up chairs, they're overseeing the benevolence money. I, I don't, you know, so if, if we're gonna have deacons here, it's not gonna be guys setting up chairs. It's gonna be people that are overseeing our benevolence funds, which we do have, for people that need that, okay, within our church and outside of it. So, so I don't know where they get that, but the reason they get it is because the word diakonia is servant, and that's what it says here, servant, and the word diaconos is deacon. That's really just means servant, okay? So you can research that more on your own later. I'm not gonna follow that rabbit trail. But the criteria for these guys: good report, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. The apostles put them in this place so that they can focus on prayer and on preaching. Um, I love that it puts prayer first. William McDonald says they made a point to speak to God about men before they were before they spoke to men about God. I love that. Okay, they spoke to God about men before. This is talking about intercessory prayer. Okay, this is this is a, a function of spiritual leadership that we should be praying over those people. Verse five and six. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. You now mark that name. This guy's really going to be prominent in next week's teaching. Okay, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip again, really prominent guy, uh, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Pumba, and Par- <laughs> oh, sorry, I couldn't help it, and Parmenas. And Nicolaus, listen to this, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. What's a proselyte? A proselyte is a Gentile who converted to Judaism. You'd read right over that, but it's actually interesting because what we're seeing here is Luke is starting to show um, the expansion of the kingdom of God outside of Jewish um, Jews within Jerusalem out to the Gentiles. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that it starts in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. And it's about Paul's journey to spread the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth, because why? Jesus said, start in Jerusalem, then Samaria, then what? The ends of the earth. And here we are, the ends of the earth, okay? Grands Pass. Well, Cave Junction is really the ends of the earth, but Grands Pass is pretty close. I'm sorry, Bruce, I can't help it. Okay, it's just the way it goes. Verse five, so, so these are the men selected. Verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? The priests are getting saved. Now, there's 12,000 priests at this time, they estimate. And most of them live away from Jerusalem, and they would come in and out of the city in order to serve their term and, and work for a few days in the temple. Most of them were very poor. Most of them, like Zechariah, for instance, they were, just, they were poor, faithful, godly, Old Covenant saints. And many of them heard the gospel in the temple because that's where the church is hanging out. And most people don't think about that. The church, when in, in the beginning, they were at the temple. That's where they met. And then they met in homes during the week. Okay? They met in the temple. And so these, these priests are hearing the gospel and they're getting saved. I just think that's amazing. I think it's incredible. Um, we're going to stop there. Five things. Five things Christians should consider when making earthly decisions in light of spiritual reality. So if you want to jot these down, um, and I'm going to go back through this text, i just going to point out five things present here in this text that you can consider when you're making decisions, which you will and which you are and which you are going to, okay, make decisions. Five things. Number one, consider your truest motives. Okay, consider your truest motives. This is the first thing you need to do when you're thinking about a decision. Now, I'm not talking about what toothpaste to get, okay? If you do all five of these steps in the aisle at the, to- the toothpaste aisle, people are going to start throwing things at you. Like, hold on, my pastor gave me these five things. Let me just go through them really quick. No, don't do that. I'm just talking about bigger decisions here, okay? Bigger decisions that need processing. So consider your truest motives. Um, in other words, be honest about what you're really after, which is really hard to do with yourself, isn't it? I mean, we're really good at lying to ourselves, aren't we? Like, we're good at tricking ourselves into thinking that we think something we don't really think. Wow. And then you have these integrity check moments where um, you actually have to, um, you, you have to actually pony up and do what you said you were going to do, and it shows you whether you actually wanted it or not. Right? Oh, I want a small church. Oh, really? Here you go. Small church. Oh, okay. <laughs> not speaking from experience. Um, th- these kinds of things. You're like, I, I, just really want, I just really want a humble life. You know, I I don't really want to be, I don't want to be anything, oh, really, is that what you really want? And then God may actually give you that, and then you have to actually realize whether your intentions were, were pure. We have to get to the heart as Christians of what we really want so that God can actually change it. Okay? We need to deal with that. So ask yourself this question. Are your motives driven by fear or by faith? By fear or by faith. Now, consider this in our text. These guys weren't trying to people please. They didn't say, let's select seven guys because, oh man, what if these widows, you know, what if they blow up our social media and we get some really bad press on this and it starts a big snowball and and these guys aren't thinking that way, it's clear. They're not doing this out of fear. They're not afraid of division. What they're doing is, is they're doing it out of faith. They believe, hey, these women are godly and important and we need to, out of faith, we need to make a decision. Okay? Out of faith, not out of fear. Reactionary decisions are almost always overcorrective, aren't they? When you do something out of fear, you almost always overcorrect, or always, almost always overcorrect, and when you overcorrect, you drive the car right into the other ditch. You're trying to avoid this one, you drive right into the other one. That's the reality of overcorrective decisions. Okay? That's not what's happening here. Now, part of this, part of getting this, faith but not fear, is getting out of this idea that, that God has some kind of cosmic will for your life, and if you take the wrong turn, you're off of it somehow. Has anyone ever taught that before? It's destructive. I used to picture my life in the Lord, which, of course, was this big, epic thing, and I was the center and the star, and everything was going to be exciting and amazing, and, and, and I pictured like this red line on a map, and that's God's will, and it's my job just to keep tuning into that. God, what do you want me to do? Okay. And people people think that way, and then they get so freaked out all the time about every decision that they make. And then if stuff starts getting hard in their life, they, they start thinking, well, I must not be in God's will. You know, my marriage is hard, parenting's hard, my job's hard, ministry's hard, I must not be in God's will. No, you are in God's will. God's will doesn't have to do with things just being hard or not. God's will is much more to do with going on within you than what's going on through you. Think about that. It's more about what God wants to do in you than what he wants to do. He can do anything anything through you anytime. The hard work is what he's doing in you, okay? And he cares much more about our desires and our affections than he does about what we're doing. What we're doing is a symptom of what we believe and what our affections are. Ask yourself this question. Are your motives driven by want and need or by stewardship? Okay, this is a hard one for me because I'm kind of a go-getter. I want to go get things done. And, And it's really easy to hide behind that I just want to serve the Lord, I just want to serve the Lord. And God says, okay, what about what I already gave you? Are you being faithful with that? Are you stewarding that? This is particularly important when you think about addition decisions. Do you know what I'm talking about? Addition decisions? Should we add this to our life? Is it a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. Okay, why do you want to do it? Is it so that you feel more needed? So you feel more important? We have this tendency of... Bloating our lives with all kinds of things, so we feel super busy. So when our friends ask how we're doing, we can say super busy. And why do we like to say that? Because it makes it feel like we're important. We're needed. Man, I'm just so busy, I got so much going on, so much things, I'm so important. I mean we we do this. Am I the only one that does that? Are you guys I just I'm just venting my laundry up here for you guys. I hope you enjoy it, okay? Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Now, the reality is, is we say yes to a lot of things not because we genuinely care about them a lot of times, but because we're, we're chasing something. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, am I doing this because it's stewarding what God gave me already or because it's chasing what God hasn't given me? In our text, these guys are not building some kind of a church strategy to manipulate church growth. Did you notice that? What are they doing? God's already given them the growth. And they're saying, let's come in and put structure underneath, and in that growth. God already did it. He already gave them all these disciples, and now they're being good stewards. It's trellis and vine. You Build a big trellis, okay, and you need to have the right amount of trellis for the right amount of vine. The point of the trellis is to support the vine. The vine is the organic growth. The vine is the the supernatural thing that you can't cause to grow. What you can do is put a vine there so that it grows up it, and a lot of churches get this flip-flopped. Okay, they build so many programs and so many structures to try to manipulate growth. Well, if we go to two services, people will think we're really big, and they'll start coming. Well, do you need to go to two services? Well, no, not really, but it's ridiculous. We do the same thing in our life. So if we can manipulate my life by making it complex, maybe my, my life will grow into the complexity. Don't make things more complicated than you need to. What is God already doing in your life, and how do you say yes to that? How do you better steward what God has already given you? Most of us aren't doing a good job of what we've already been given, and the New Testament says a lot about this. I mean, Jesus nails it over and over again. Are you being faithful? If you're being faithful with what you've been given, God will give you more. But he's not going to give you more stuff to manage badly, right? I mean, he might, but he shouldn't. Ambition and complexity can be a convenient disguise for idolatry. Have you ever noticed that? In our culture, worships it. That guy's so ambitious. He works three jobs, 80 hours a week. It well, sounds like idolatry. Sounds like he's worshiping his job, her job. But in our culture, we, we, we hold that up, right? At the same time, simplicity can be a disguise for fear and passivity. Someone's just saying, well, I'm just trying to keep it simple. Okay, but a certain amount of complexity is needed in order to steward what God has given you. So my point is just this, get honest with the Lord about what you really want and why you really want it. And I have to say this because um, it's important, and I think it's God's heart, It's that God uses mixed and bad motives all the time. So if you're thinking, well, man, I don't know, my motives, my motives, are, are my motives right? Probably not. <laughs> Probably kind of, kind of right, kind of not. Just kind of like most of our lives, kind of good, kind of bad mostly bad. Okay, we're a mixed back, But the the beauty of God's grace is that he, not only does he redeem our mixed motives, but he sanctifies them. So many times where I've just said, God, I don't know if my motives are right, but I'm going to do this because I think it's right. And then he has sanctified my motives in the journey. Okay, so we can trust him to do that. Number two, consider the truest realities when you're making a decision. Consider the truest realities. In other words, make earthly decisions in light of heavenly realities. And I spoke to this a little bit in the beginning, but there's always a larger story behind your story. You know, this 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 whole thing that we're part of, it's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than you. And if you're making decisions only in light of your own little scope, you're making bad decisions. The only one who sees the whole thing is God. He is ultimate reality. So we need to tune into him. We need to get on his story, be part of what he's doing. What I love about this text is that the apostles, they're not tuned into just the issue. Oh no, we got complaints, we got to figure it out. What I love is that they're already tuned into the fact that God is doing something really big and they're just trying to say yes to it. What do I mean by that? The, the body of Christ is a, a spiritual reality. Now you don't always get that and you don't always feel that. But it is, you guys, if you look around, you guys are part of something that is more real than the physical family that you have blood relation with. You're more connected to the body than you are your physical family because it's a spiritual reality. God actually birthed something when he made the church. The story of Acts isn't the start of a movement, it's the start of a thing called the church, and we're still here. We're connected and bound. And so what the apostles are doing is they're simply saying yes to this bigger reality that God birthed, and that is the church. And in that church, we have diversity. We have different cultures coming from different backgrounds with different languages. Every one of us in here has different backgrounds, different cultural distinctives. And regardless of that, you are one. So the apostles, because they're tuned into God's truth, they look at this situation and they don't go, oh, well, that's annoying. Let's just start two churches. They go, no, we're one. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out because we're one. There's lots of spiritual realities in your life you need to tune into, and and a lot of us don't even know that they're there. Here's an example. Marriage. Marriage is a thing. Did you know that? When when two people get married, it's not just that God is, is, is getting two people to become married people. God is creating a marriage. Have you ever thought about that? He's literally creating a marriage. I went to a wedding the other day, um, and it was totally a secular wedding. There was no mention of God, which was kind of empty. You know, it was a lot of romance and um, empty promises and um, really nothing about sacrifice or grit or uh, commitment, just a lot of romance. And, and I, I just turned to, to my aunt who was next to me, and, and I just said, is something missing here? And she said, yeah. And then I said, you know, isn't it interesting, though, that even though they don't know it, they are still creating something. Well, in fact, God is creating something. Even though they aren't admitting or, or saying that, that there is a covenant that now exists somehow, in the spiritual realm there is a real thing there, a unity, it is and it does. It exists, it's a reality. And so when you divorce, you are literally breaking apart a spiritual reality that God made. You're destroying something that's real. Now, of course, if you don't think of marriage that way, then you don't know you're doing it, but you're still doing it. You're still doing it. Family, same thing. You ever notice that connection you have with your kids? Like you would literally wrestle a grizzly bear for them? Why? Can evolution explain that? Or is there an actual supernatural reality behind the connection between you and your kids? I believe there is. And I believe when you kill a kid in your your, your belly, that you're actually severing a relationship that God created, and it, and it wounds your soul. And that's why we need so much grace for people that have had abortions. They need, they need to be reminded of the love of God because there's a hurt in them because they've actually killed a spiritual reality and a physical one and a soul, right? These are all real things, and when you're making physical decisions, you need to think about the spiritual one, the spiritual things that, that are more real than the things that we see, God is the ultimate reality. So ask yourself these questions. Which decision aligns most clearly with what I know about God's nature? What would please God most? These are questions that I almost never hear people asking when they're looking for advice. You know, should I do this or shouldn't I? What, what, would, what would honor God most? What would build his kingdom most? What would be most true to his nature? What, what pleases him? What honors him? Ask yourself those questions. Which decision postures you more to grow in him or fade from him? How does this decision square with God's stated will in Scripture? And we think so much about God's unstated will, we obsess over it. What's God's will? What's God's will? What's God's will? If we just spent half that time thinking about what God already said his will was, we would know what to do way more often. He's already told us more than we are even close to doing. We are drinking way more protein shakes than we are lifting weights, right? And yeah, you know what happens when that happens, okay? Number three. Consider your truest roles and callings. Your truest roles and callings. And here's where the balance comes in, too, because you'll have something come up, and you'll be like, well, this is pleasing to God. Should we adopt a child? Should we do foster care? Should we go serve at the mission? Like, well, that seems like it pleases God, so the answer must be yes, right? Obviously. Well, hold on. Maybe. But you need to think about this question, too. What is your truest and primary calling? What's the stuff God's already told you to do? And how is this new decision going to interact and affect the stuff that God already told you to do? Every addition is a subtraction. Did you know that? You may not know this, but you are a finite being. You have a budget on your time, on your affection, on your bandwidth. You can only do so much. Some of you don't realize that, but you do. And so everything you say yes to is a no to something else. Okay, so you really have to budget your affections, budget your oversight. The most successful people in the world, they do that. They understand that their time is really important and they budget it, just like they would money. In fact, when you get really rich, your time is more valuable than your money, right? So you have to learn to budget your time. So what has God already told you to do primarily or what might he be calling you to do primarily? And you need to think about that, you need to take that into account. The apostles knew their primary calling, didn't they? They understand that, they understood that, they had a clear sense. This is what we're called to do primarily. We're called to be about prayer, and about the scriptures. That wasn't some kind of a superiority thing. It couldn't have been, because Jesus, the king of the world, washed their feet, right? But it was about a priority thing. It wasn't about a preeminent thing. It was about a priority thing. It wasn't, we're better than the deacons. It was, we have a particular calling. And by the way, you need to note this. The deacons preach the word. (laughs) Stephen gets killed for it in the next chapter. You'll see. And you better believe the apostles washed their feet because Jesus did it and told them to do it too. Okay? So, so if you're the guy setting up chairs, that doesn't mean that you don't get to minister the word. And if you're the guy ministering the word, that doesn't mean you don't have to set up a chair. Okay? There's a reality to that. My, my role at home is I am the father and the husband, but I still own the dishwasher. Okay, Sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time. Every believer is a minister of the word. This is the new covenant. But the apostles had a really particular job. Their job was to be all about the word. And and can I just say, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to be focused on the word all the time. Okay, I don't prep sermons in five hours. I prep them in 25 hours. And you can say, Sam, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. This deserves it. Okay, it deserves it. I have nothing to say, this has everything to say. I have no authority, this has all authority. I have no creative ideas, life experience, anything. This has everything. So I spend my time figuring out what this says so I can tell you what it says because this is the authority, not me. Does that make sense? Okay, the apostles understood that. So ask yourself, what has God called you to do that someone else can't do? A good example of that is parenting your kids. You know, you want to invite some things in your life that could be really good. Oh, that's good. What about the thing God already told you to do that nobody else can do? Parenting your kids. Are you doing that? Are you doing it well? Are you doing it as good as you should be doing it? Are you giving them the time? Um, being married to your wife or husband? Better not be letting anybody else do that. <laughs> Leading your spouse, serving your spouse, praying over your spouse, into your spouse. These are things that you should be doing. And if something new comes up, um, even if it's a good thing, but it's subtracting from the most important thing, then it's really not a good thing, is it? Jesus got this. I mean, he was the most spiritual guy. He was God, okay? And he got this. He understood that he could only do so much. And he spent special attention with special people. He spent most of his time with 12 guys. Yes, he engaged with the crowds, but he spent most of his time with 12 guys. <laughs> And that's the reality because he knew he had a bound bandwidth because he, was, he added humanity to his divinity. He understood this, and he budgeted his time, so to speak. Don't make your life more complicated than it needs to be, okay? Number four, this is a quick one, consider your truest contextual resources. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean who around you knows more about the decision you're trying to make than you do? I want you to see it in the text. The apostles actually recruited seven men who were what? Greek. Well, they were Jewish, but they had Greek backgrounds. They were Hellenistic men. They're all, they're all Greek names, all seven of them. And the reason they did that was because these guys got how to interact with those people. They, they invited wisdom. And in fact, the apostles didn't even recruit them. They let those guys recruit them. They said, go pick seven guys, and we'll lay hands on them, we'll affirm them. So what they did was they leaned in on um, other people other than themselves, and they said, um, we're trusting the, the Hellenistic Uh, Society and culture and synagogues, we're trusting them that they know more about this situation than we do And I would just say in the same regard It's okay to invite people into these decisions that maybe know more things than you do about this particular areas Okay, if I'm gonna buy a house, I'm calling Brian, right? I'm not gonna figure that out by myself Okay, Brian knows more about that than I do and I'm gonna make decisions with wise people. That's just smart, okay? And lastly Consider the true cost, and this one's really key. Consider the true cost of obedience regardless of the outcome. We make most of our decisions based on what we believe the outcome will be, if it will be favorable. God wants us to make decisions based on obedience regardless of what the outcome is. Most of the people that made godly decisions in the first book of the early church got killed, And do you think they were sitting there as rocks were bashing their heads in, thinking, oops, missed the will of God. You're gonna see it next week, Stephen's gonna get stoned. He's the first martyr, okay? And he, 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 read the story. He wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I chose the wrong door. I should be at home realizing my best life now, like Joel Osteen told me to do, you know? As, he's, as his flesh is being ripped away, Christ had been formed in him, and Christ comes out of him. And his, his, he, his obedience led to his destruction, just like his Lord. Jesus obeyed the Father unto death. The will of God, the right decision, oftentimes will cost us more than we really can understand that we're actually going to be willing to pay. I want you to look at the next half of this chapter. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great works and wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freed men, as it was called, And of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So they're arguing with him, um, debating with him over his theology in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he's speaking. That particular sentence is the same sentence that has been used of Jesus and been used of all the apostles. They can't win arguing with these guys because the spirit is in them, okay? And you can't win arguing with God. (laughs) You will lose, He knows more. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men, done that before, who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Now note this, what they're doing is they are, are, are using fear to create a mob. Why do I say fear? Because the temple was the center of the socioeconomic world in Jerusalem. The temple was the center of the religious world in Jerusalem. It's the center of everything, for everybody, including the the mafia Sadducees. They're making their living off it. So what they do is they say, hey, let's hire some guys to come and tell everybody that these guys are trying to shut down the temple because Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple, which was a misinterpretation of Jesus' words, right? So they're, they're, they're using fear to create a mob. Verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes that came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law for we have heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I don't know. But I think it was probably kind of like the moglo. Does anybody know what the moglo is? Anyone who grew up in church, you know what the Mo Glow is? (laughs) Moses came down the mountain after interacting with Yahweh, and he had this glow. It wasn't his own glow. It was a reflection of God's glory. So these guys are so blind by hatred and fear and insecurity that they see God's face shining on Stephen, and as we'll see in the next chapter, they still chuck a rock and kill him. I mean, they were so blind. And Stephen, and I'm not trying to give away next week's message, but Stephen stands there as he's being literally killed, murdered brutally. He stands there and he looks up to heaven and he says, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. How does he have the confidence to say that? He knows he's in the will of God. And there's no safer place than to be in the will of God. Not some cosmic line talking about the gospel, believing that God loves you. There's nothing you can do to earn it more than you do now. And Stephen goes, my God loves me. He's going to preserve me, and this will only serve to glorify him. The best decisions will and may cost you the most, but they're the best because you're right where you're supposed to be. Ask yourself this question. This is a really hard one. You ready? What would you do if you knew it would fail? everybody asks you, what would you do if you could do anything and it would succeed? That's the American question. What would you do? I like this question. What would you do if you knew it would fail? This was a question that helped me when I tried to decide if I wanted to come plant a church out here, which by all means was really a bad idea in a lot of ways because I don't know anybody out here. I know everybody in Medford. I came out here and I don't know anybody. And God has graciously brought all of you guys to be part of this and support this and God is doing amazing things. But I had to ask myself this question. if this fails, in two years, would it be worth it still? And of course the answer was yes. And just two years of this would be so worth it. Two years of what God's been doing here, the health of this, the family that we've created, the fellowship we've created, the people we're reaching out to, the neighbors that we're loving, it's so worth it, even if it all fails in two years. Those are the things that I wanna spend my time on, the things that aren't just based off of how they turn out, but the things that the journey itself is actually more, (laughs) it's actually more valuable, right? Ask yourself those kinds of questions, and let me close with this one last thought. Sometimes, guys, there's going to be decisions that is just not obvious. Like you're going to come, you're going to make decisions, and you're going to go through these things, and you're going to go, I don't know. They both seem like good things. In that case, just pick one. Use your wisdom, and know that whatever you do, God loves you. Okay. I mean, he really, he really, he, you know, he's not. It's not like you screwed up, and now he's never going to, you know. Oh, I picked the wrong thing. God has left from me. You know why the Spirit of the Lord left David? Because David was an unrepentant sin. Mm-hmm. And then the second he looked God in the eyes again, the Spirit came right back. Okay? And yeah, that was in the Old Covenant, but still, okay? Trust the Lord, believe the gospel, make good decisions. But do the heart work of wrestling through your real motives and wrestle through what God's truest realities are so that you can make the best decisions. Uh, here's the reality. We are terrestrial beings. Did you know that? When you got born again, you became a terrestrial being. You don't fit here, you don't belong here, and so you shouldn't make decisions like you live here. You should make weird decisions. I'm not saying you should be a weird person. Please don't, we have enough of those. I'm saying you should make weird decisions. Think about every person who was ever honorable to God in the Old Testament. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about Daniel. Think about Joseph. I mean, Dan- Daniel's like, I'm not going to eat the king's meats. What? It's a weird decision, Daniel. Well, I'm terrestrial. I'm an alien, okay? Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Noah, for crying out loud. I mean, everybody thought that guy was bonkers. What are you making a boat for? What's a boat? It's going to rain. What's rain? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm making decisions based off of God's reality, okay? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them. The, the, these people were, all would have been considered insane. And if we're not making decisions that sometimes seem a little insane to people, we may not be terrestrial beings, Okay? So it's okay to make weird decisions. That's all I have.